0: Episode 22, Talk Soups and CEOs, Midas Education, and Dr. Gustavo Balderas. Come on in. Well, here we are again thank you for being here thanks for listening we appreciate the support want to just wish everybody out there in IEI land all of our IEI superintendent members a great and festive graduation season I think a year ago as everybody was putting together graduations that looked nothing like they used to look like at least many of them this year will look somewhat like what uh what kids and families had envisioned you know several years ago and when their their graduates were little ones and looking up to the future of graduation so uh a celebratory cathartic time of year for sure especially after what everyone's been through so i know that that's what's on the minds of of everybody out in school districts as well as um you know finishing up the year getting ready for a summer unlike others we've had just because there's going to be some extra stuff happening in school districts to try to help kids um, who who have uh, struggled this year for one reason or another and you know the the advent of I think a kind of cool new concept of of more of a summer camp approach happening in a lot of districts largely or partially funded at least by the ESSER money so it's going to be an interesting summer. Um, this is a, a, a great conversation and I'm really excited to share it with you. Um, today, uh, in episode 22, we have our friends Megan Harney and Patrick Leonard from Midas Education and uh, former Superintendent of the Year from AASA, Dr. Gustavo Balderas, IEI member and Superintendent of Edmonds Public Schools in Washington. Gustavo switched districts last summer so during a pandemic switched districts switched states at a time when you know a lot of folks were deciding i think i'm gonna take my leave of this career or retire or resign or you know do something else um gustavo stepped right into the fire and has had a very interesting year there um guiding the district and the community through just tough stuff and he, he reflects on that a little bit and reflects on, on what it was like to be the new superintendent during a time when every decision he made made somebody upset. Um, talks about the politics of it a little bit and how some think you are you shouldn't have kids in school. Some think you should have the kids in school the whole time. So someone's upset all the time and they uh, took them a while to get kids back to school in Edmonds and so uh, that's now... Underway, and you know, I think the most important thing is that the kids who are in school are glad to be there and it's happy and um, they are moving forward from there. So, we also talk a lot about how professional development is changing, and um, Gustavo and uh, Midas are heavily involved with a system of competency based education. And micro credentials for teacher professional development, and we talk a little bit about that. How how we measure student success or performance is changing yet again, and the the summative assessment may be at least changing, if not becoming a thing of the past. And you know what role the pandemic has played in that, or or what role is just you know a a new way of thinking and the availability of technology to foster that new way of thinking about measuring student performance. Um, you know, what role is that playing? Uh, and then there are just some states that are ready to think forward about this and that domino effect may start to sweep the nation. So we get into the particulars of it and I know I learned a couple of things in this episode because I'll admit I've heard the term micro-credentialing and just sort of assumed it was, you know, you get like a little badge and move on. Good job, Um, like uh, when you get a a sticker at the doctor's office for getting a shot or get a sticker for voting. And so uh, Megan and Pat kind of take me to school on that during this episode. And then Gustavo shows us how it applies back to um, the practical setting of his school district. So hope you enjoy the episode. Megan Harney, Patrick Leonard, Dr. Gustavo Balderas. All right, welcome back to TalkSoups and CEOs. We are excited to be here today with three of our great friends from the Pacific Northwest. We have Dr. Gustavo Balderas, who's the superintendent of Edmonds Public Schools in Washington. Good morning, Gustavo, how are you? Doing
1: phenomenal, thanks, Doug. Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here early. Uh, and we have our friends Patrick Leonard and Megan Harney from Midas Education, longtime partner. How are you, Megan and Pat?
2: Doing great.
3: Fantastic.
0: Good to see you all. Um, All right, so we're, we just all saw each other, which was great uh, at the Broadmoor in Colorado. Thanks to all of you for being there. And I know you've all got, you've got some interesting discussions going on, uh, out your way on some micro-credentialing work, and I want to get into that. But let's just start with Gustavo, you've had, you've had quite a year, you moved districts, from you move states, move districts in the middle of the pandemic. What was that like? And how did you work that transition? So
1: something I would never recommend is transitioning during a pandemic. So something that for any inspired aspiring superintendents out there don't ever do that. It was tough. I'm be really honest, it was really tough because part of the superintendency is building relationships quickly in your community and being very visible in your community and your schools. And it's, it was difficult to do during a Zoom environment when information was shifting and we were shifting in terms of what we were trying to do. So it was tough. It's a great district, you know, five municipalities. We have roughly 22,000 kids, really diverse district, 129 languages. So uh, 53% of our kids are kids of color. So really uh, smooth transition in terms of just understanding the work, but a tough transition in terms of trying to build relationships coming in from Eugene, Oregon. But again, great board, great community. So excited to
0: to work here. How do you quickly build the relationships and trust to make the difficult decisions you had to make this year? For example, you only had students come back on campus full-time a few weeks ago. How did you navigate that?
1: That was really difficult as well, Doug, just because of the fact that uh, the West Coast is behind, it seems like, the rest of the U.S. in terms of bringing kids back. You know, California, Oregon, and Washington State have been the, the, the ones that have lagged compared to others. And uh, it's been difficult because the longer people were out, it's more of a comfort in terms of the way things are. And we've been in this pandemic almost a year and a half. So it's tough to transition back uh, when you've been out so long. And also this, uh, this whole pandemic and the whole being out of school has really uh, had a political bend to it. Again, this is my opinion, my opinion it has it's had a p- political band. So you have some people that are mad because you're back in school. You have people that are mad because uh, you're not in school. So it's the, the job of a superintendent has probably been the most difficult in my 31 years in education, in my 10 plus years as superintendent, because uh, everybody's mad at you, the CEO. Everybody's mad at the CEO, because every decision you make is the wrong decision. Like I tell my cabinet, if I want to make people happy, I guess I'd sell ice cream full time. So, because it's been really tough and I'm going to be, it's been tough. That's why you're seeing, I think, so many changes. I think I just read yesterday, you know, five out of the seven largest school districts in the U.S. are open right now in terms of their CEOs. Yes,
0: yep.
1: And, uh, and that's a pattern that's been happening and will continue to happen because again, the burnout is high and the love is not there for the CEOs right now because people want what they want. And if you don't give them what they want, uh, they're angry, and uh, and I worry about school boards coming forward in terms of school board members that are running because they're angry about something and wanting a solution, and uh, believe me, every superintendent I know is working 24-7 trying to find a solution that's best for their kids and their communities. We're doing this best we can. Yeah,
0: and everyone we know is as well. You we know you are the honeymoon. You used to get a honeymoon, right? Did you get a honeymoon period moving to the new district, or was it just sort of Let's go, Bob right. Let's figure this out. It was right. It
1: was a it was a quick dive into it. Quick dive into it. So,
0: yeah i I hope uh, I hope that once things settle, um, you will get some some years of, you know, really kind of working and, and building and and working toward your agenda. Um, do you? So, how's it been having kids back? Is everyone happy? Is it is it good so far?
1: You know, it, it it's it's been difficult trying to find staffing. So it seems like uh, we should have been been ready. Raised- for this, but uh, here the the rules are a little different in terms of how staff can take leave still has not changed. So we've had difficulty staffing our schools on the, in Washington state in terms of
0: Difficulty, so how, explain that to people listening. So, So don't you have a faculty that's on salary and they're at work or how does it work?
1: So that's a great question. So I think what people need to realize is there's certain provisions because of COVID in terms of what leaves people can take. So there's been a rise in leaves. So if we have people, kids in school, we've had a, we've had difficulty having enough teachers or substitutes to be able to cover in in school, like in a brick and mortar setting. So it's been a, a, a few people taking uh, these leaves, including uh, paraprofessionals all the way through uh, through administrators. So staffing schools has been more difficult uh, than we had thought, but we're we're making it. We're making it. Yeah. In something that's up and down the I-5 corridor here in Washington State.
0: I've heard that from some of our IEI colleagues in other parts of of, of Washington. It's um, it's interesting because the the CDC should be sort of the the authority on this, right? And CDC says it's safe to be back at school with certain measures in place. Has that has the CDC's uh, guidance resonated at all in the community? That seems pretty. Pretty difficult to navigate.
1: I think it's been really difficult to navigate because every state's been able to uh, make their own rules. So when you have a state like Texas that has been full bore, you know, full full in person the whole time, and us just getting here, it's a, it's it. There's a lot of anxiety, especially with COVID cases spiking recently. We're up above 200 per 100,000 here last two weeks rolling. So there's anxiety, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, people have a lot of anxiety, you know, there's hesitancy right now in getting vaccinated as well. There's hesitancy in that. And that's causing me some concern. I know that the Pfizer vaccine is gonna be out next week here uh, for 12 years plus for our middle and high school kids, which is a big big hip hip hooray. And I just can't wait to get shots in orange for our little guys here, hopefully later on this fall or early first quarter of 22, which that sounds crazy. The first quarter of 22, it seems like we lost like two years.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I've I've got one who fits in the two to twelve age category, so I saw that news and was pretty excited myself. So. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, but everybody's doing the best they can, Doug. And yeah. we have a we're in hybrid for elementary and doing concurrent learning, where we have kids at home and at the brick and borders that are secondary that are that are uh, seeing the same lesson as, as, as their as their peers and just switch, swapping days when they're in school and actually in the brick and mortar.
0: Yeah, but. Kids are coming to school right now, happy, happy kids, happy families, everything going all right.
1: Kids are excited to be back, see their friends. You know, the mental health toll that this pandemic has caused our kiddos has been real and is something that we're gonna be working through for the next few years, I believe. A few years, yep. The next the mental health supports for our kids and our staff in our community, this is taking a toll on a lot of people.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely. And we've, we've talked a lot about that. There's, there's, there's so much where I think we're all still trying to figure out what to call it, but there's going to be so much residual effect of this entire year on everyone from top to bottom in the school system. And, you know, we're, a lot of us are thinking through the academic stuff, the, you know, the academic interventions that are going to need to be in place. Um, and I know that there's a big conversation happening nationally right now around micro credentialing and a role that can play in that discussion. And Megan and Pat, I wanted to kind of go to you and just sort of tell us what you're hearing out there. I know you're doing some work in some states, but um, what are you hearing about about this as a potential solution to help kids, families, you know, get through this?
2: Sure, Doug. Well, the the reason that we're really excited about micro-credentialing and a lot of our partners are, is that it's one of the ways to start actualizing competency-based learning in a real way um most of competency-based people have been talking about competency-based learning for 30 40 maybe longer um, yeah. 30 40 years I mean, maybe longer
0: my, my sort of sense let's sort of define it a little bit for those who are not familiar with the term competency-based learning has always meant to me something like we don't give grades we give kind of evaluative feedback am right am i am i right there
2: uh, i I'd, I'd actually say no i i think uh I think competency-based learning or aka mastery-based learning means you get the thing that you need before you go on to the next thing. You, you you get the foundation and you and you can prove that you know it and everybody around you knows that you know it so that you are prepared to go on to the next thing. And the, the example that I like to use is if a child passes Algebra 1, they get a C. Okay, great, you passed. You can go on to Algebra 2. Uh, okay, but I I got a C, I'm going to struggle in algebra two, there's no way that I can go on and get an A in algebra two, and everybody's like, well, why are you getting a C in algebra two? Well, because I got C in algebra one, right? And so uh, implementing a mastery-based learning plan means that algebra one might have, you know, 18 different topics that I need to learn in order to be successful in algebra two. I need to master each one of those, and I need to provide evidence that I've mastered it, not just, okay, I can regurgitate information on a test, I can show you that I understand it. And because of that i'm going to be successful in my next endeavor and that applies to any subject area i mean math is a really easy example because we all understand how the thing that you did before scaffolds the thing that comes next but that's really true across the board
0: okay great so um so there's a push toward competency-based because we know that kids are now going to be off out of sync with their with the prescribed
2: you can't just assume. In fact, Doug, I think you you mentioned that you know your daughter is going into first grade, I believe.
0: Second next year.
2: And second grade, but you know, losing basically her whole first grade year, like you're you the first grade is important. You're learning how to not have you know kind of your individual areas in the classroom. You're sitting in your desk for longer periods of time. You're doing these things that students just might not have. And so now, when you when you consider that gap, how how do we start at start figuring out what do students have, what don't they have, how can we quantify it? Um, and how can we make sure to kind of give them recognizable small ways to go after the bits that they're missing?
0: Great, so then let's talk about where, where competency is, uh, sorry, where, where, where micro-credentialing and competency-based education are going kind of on the national scene and then let's bring it back to Edmonds. We'd love to hear what's happening there.
3: Well, I think I'll jump in there. Um, part of that is with this pandemic. You know, as Megan mentioned earlier, we've been talking about competency-based, evidence-based, or mastery-based learning for at least forty years. I graduated college in 1986, and it was a topic we talked about. We haven't been there. The pandemic has sort of forced us to reevaluate what we what we mean about learning and how do we measure student learning here in Washington State, we're not going to be taking the SBAC, the Smarter Balanced Summative Assessment. Didn't take it last year. Probably won't be taking it anywhere this year. Well, for 40 years, we've used that summative assessment as a measure of whether kids learn something, a single point in time on a test. And we've known that's probably not the best way to do it. But with mastery-based learning, we can start moving towards that. I think this movement And one of the things we're excited about, and the work we're starting in Utah, Wyoming, and Nevada, is credit recovery. So we take a student who maybe failed a particular course. We don't have the spot, the slot, to fill in that course in a traditional standard school system. You know, as Gustavo was mentioning, we have some staffing concerns. We don't have all of the kids coming back to school full-time yet. So we don't have those extra spots to put a kid in to make up a class. Well, as Megan used the example of math, a child fails algebra one, maybe they got 50% of it. We can use fairly easy assessments to figure out which of the standards, which of the concepts did they get and they already passed and which are they missing? And with micro-credentials, they could earn a few micro-credentials to pick up something that they're missing, which could turn into a credit. And the students can work with help from their teachers, they can work on their own time, and we can do that across multiple subject areas. So Utah's working with us for teachers to be building micro-credentials in their classrooms so their students can earn micro-credentials not only to for credit recovery, but to prove evidence of mastery in the subject area to get that credit when we return to what we call normal.
0: So in other words, when we're back to so-called normal, uh, each kid can start at his or her natural starting point versus starting where everyone is. Exactly.
2: Exactly, and, and we're hearing nationally a, a lot of conversations, the, the phrase is profile the graduate. I, I think it's, it's a good term, but a lot of people are unfamiliar with, with what that means. That's mapping out what are the qualities that we want to see in a young person to be successful in a future, in a future career, right? And a lot of those things focus on 21st century skills, good communication, collaboration, uh, grit. You know, can I, can I deal with challenges? Um, but it, it, can, it can really work for, for anything. What are the characteristics that we want people to have? Map those to competencies and demonstrations of those competencies. And then give children a lot of opportunities to, um, to prove that, that, that they've mastered it. And so, you know, Pat mentioned that the summative exam is a point in time. We take a single measure of a student. If we told all the parents that we're gonna gauge how good you are as a parent by seeing how fast your child runs a mile, that's it. Let's that's the, that's the only way we can measure whether or not you've, you, have raised your, you have raised a good child. You know, that's, that's not appropriate for everybody. Not everybody can run a mile fast or at a particular level that we set for them. And so if you want children to demonstrate mastery I used to example, you know, I, I, I used to teach some algebra and I would have kids who were who could solve, you know, straight up algebra problems very simply and other kids who could understand the concept clearly, but they would they would do it pictorially. They would draw pictures and I would try to get the kids to switch and get the kids who drew pictures to understand the algebraic expression and the kids who understood the algebraic expression to look at the pictures and understand what that meant. They looked at me like, you're nuts. <laughs> What 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 are what are you thinking? This is the way I understand this. And so why not give kids in both um, in both groups the opportunity to explain that they understand the concept in the way that they understand it?
0: Is this that I feel like we've talked about this kind of thing for a long time now, 10, 15 years? Um, and it sometimes comes it sometimes seems sort of like a thing that's fun to talk about, like in academic circles, but you know, when it comes time to, for the rubber to meet the road, Gustavo, how, how does this play out in the district when you're, when you're trying to really do this? Can you, can you truly set up a situation where every kid is starting from his or her starting point based on, you know, information we have about their kind of micro-credentialed progress toward a credit?
1: Yes, I think that's a, that's a great question, Diane. I think that's, I think what this pandemic has taught us is we really need to revisit the way we look at education from uh, seat time to our calendar, we have an agrarian calendar that I don't know why we still have an agrarian calendar, right? So, uh, and we've been having the conversation about competency-based uh, learning, um, micro credentialing, badges for a few years now, right? So, what does that look like here in this state, and what does that look like in education, and where, and, and where does it best fit? I think it fits in a variety of different areas. Um, one area where we're looking at badges or micro-credentialing in my last district was through CTE programs and our in our partners. We have a lot of partners in our community, a lot of tech companies that want certain proficiencies that they want to see in their in their uh, incoming workers that we were trying to figure out how does how does our high schools work with them to ensure that we have these skills. Megan, you know, I call them process skills or soft skills that people are looking for. So what are those skills? Like, how do you work together? I mean, literally, I, I sat around bunch of tech guys uh, in Eugene and uh, I asked them what they wanted in terms of the incoming worker. Hey, I want somebody who shows up on time and and is able to pass uh, uh, a test. So in terms of just be, literally and, and and working together and, be, and, and able to work in a group. So how do you measure that in a, uh, a brick and mortar classroom other than having some other way such as a a badge or micro credential to be able to say hey how do you work together as a team what are those skill sets that are needed to work together as a team and I think those are the things that we in education in our brick and mortar schools k-12 we struggle in terms of trying to teach that because there's no proficiency in terms of what we expect our teachers to do with kids so how do you work with together in teams how do you how do you work um as, as a as a collective but also how do you how do you speak you know how do you how do you work with kids on how to speak a little bit better in terms of in public to me it's it's a perfect fit like for Avid as well because Avid right. teaches those skills for our kiddos especially our kiddos that've been traditionally marginalized or furthest from educational justice so how do you work together to bring in something that adds value to the current system so that's kind of where i'm thinking here in edmonds uh, how do we add value to that uh, especially right now where Again, we need to add value to everything because our kids are so far behind uh, in terms of their uh, mental wellness, but also some kids really are far behind in their academic progress. Some, you know, this pandemic has worked for some kids, but the majority, it hasn't worked, and it has caused a mental toll on the majority.
3: Yeah. I think, Gustavo, you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about, you know, in Eugene, when you brought in the businesses, you brought in industry, And I think that's where the competency-based or the mastery-based learning is moving whether we in education are ready for it or not. Um, Megan and I have attended conferences with Amazon and Microsoft and others and they're already saying we want evidence that the potential employee can do the skill, can program, can do what it is we need them to do and we're not as concerned about a college degree. Some of the work we're doing you know nationally in Utah, we pushed legislation this year with some help from some Senate sponsors on how do we tie K-12 to higher ed and to workforce. I met yesterday with the folks in the state of Connecticut. It was with the governor's workforce development task force, the governor's higher ed task force, and we've already met with the Department of Education. And they're looking at how do we address needs of computer science or CTE when we don't have certifications for teachers to teach CTE How do we expect our students to earn some of those competent competencies that our industries are going to need in a few years so of of all places the state of wyoming department of education is working with us in micro-credentials and they're partnering with marzano and associates to build 48 micro-credentials for computer science education and they've already agreed that what wyoming builds utah wants to use And Utah has already built 93 micro-credentials for teacher professional development. Wyoming's going to use those. And we met, what, two weeks ago with the state superintendent in Nevada, and she was saying, ooh, can I play? So how do we work across states to share what they build? Um, That's the big, for us, it's the big push is, learners are learners, whether they be students or teachers or administrators working on certification or credentialing or workforce, or retraining for the job skills, learners are learners, and we had to build a platform that accommodates the needs of that system. So the creation studio in micro-credentials allows you to build the micro-credentials. The reviewer process allows it to go to how does it get into the catalog and who approves it, the application process to earn it, and then the certification process. Who says, yes, you've got it, you've earned it, and what currency is behind it? And I think that big piece is where we talked to Gustavo about that. The currency, what, what's my incentive? Do I get high school credit, college credit, industry certifications, all three? Am I a teacher? Do I earn clock hours? Do I earn professional development credit? Do I earn college credit that counts on the salary scale? Without that piece of currency we're kind of missing the boat. And I think that's where we're excited to do this work because everybody we're talking to says, that's it. We need to have evidence and we need to have currency. And we've built that. So that's why this work is so exciting for us.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Pat. Yeah, I was going to ask you the, you know, I wanted to talk a little about teacher professional development. So are you saying that these states are looking at turning these micro credentials into things that you can use for credits or they can be put into the into the salary scale. So, so there's a real incentive to do it versus just like, they want me to learn how to do coding. I don't wanna learn how to do coding, right? Like there's a real, there's there's something there for teachers that could be pretty transformative, especially if states start getting involved. You could you can see a complete change in how we do professional development and raise your hand if you think that we've been doing an awesome job at professional development for teachers over the years, no one's gonna raise their hands because everyone thinks it can be better, right? Um, the two-day sitting in the cafeteria model is still—I mean, I don't know, but I'm guessing that's still 75% of all the PD that's out there in the world. And what you what you all are onto is pretty interesting. And it—you know—do you think there'll be real changes in how you do PD next year in the district?
2: Well, I'll, I'll let Gustavo answer with regard to Washington, but Utah has actually passed legislation that within—I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is—but two or three years all teacher PD will be competency based. There will be no more opportunities to get credit for something that you have not where you have not demonstrated that you have a competency. Micro credentials are going to be a big part of that. They have specialists writing hundreds of micro credentials for educators right now.
0: But the districts have to come along, right? And so maybe in
2: Utah, in Utah, the state board gets gets to tell them how they're going to earn credit for relicensure. So it's it's different state to state, and Gustavo can comment how you know that might work in his district. Yeah. So
1: you know that that's um, a big. I think your point coming from from the top in terms of for here the certification agency, OSPI is our state certification agency, and also our state education agency, which is combined, which is maybe different in other states where it's split here it's combined and um it needs to start there so the conversations that uh megan and patrick are having at the highest level that's where they need to start because it needs to be pushed both from the top down also from the bottom up because it's a good thing to do so i think that com- that uh, that push from both ends is needed here in washington state and i think uh, uh that's happening from my understanding and i think it's going to continue to happen because i think this is the way it- uh, this just makes sense when you take three steps back and look at the big picture, what, what's being talked about right now just makes common sense in terms of what you expect, uh, uh, to your staff to be able to partake in, in terms of the
3: professional learning. I Another part of that, I'm, I'm sorry, a, a big part of that is the cost. Doing competency-based learning and micro credentials that are learner directed or teacher directed, it's a lot less expensive. The old model of getting 60 teachers to sit in a room and feed them rubber chicken salad for lunch, that's expensive. You're paying the teachers a lot of money to sit there. You're paying the consultant to come in and teach. Some cases you're paying for substitutes to sit in the classroom. That's really, really an expense that there's no efficacy that there was anything learned using a professional development system where teachers can find what they need to learn and then prove they learned it and then actually implemented it in their classroom. It's much less expensive, but Gustavo's right. It has to be a top down bottom up where you have to see the value of doing it. And we're fortunate that Utah is moving in that direction, but we've been there for four years. These conversations have been ongoing for four years. We've been working with the folks in Wyoming for three years. We've been working with Nevada for two years. You know, Connecticut's moving fairly quickly. I've been working here in Washington for 35 years. I taught here for 20 years. I understand the system here very well. And where the power, you know, the levers of power are, you have to make sure you address their concerns. By the way, uh,
0: Tiffany and I have a strict no rubber chicken at IEI events rule. And I think we've successfully delivered on that uh, <laughs> as a provider of professional development opportunities to superintendents. but. Yeah, it's that that, that, the thing about that model, though, the the rubber chicken all day y'all come session is that people want to be together and people are used to it. Um, Does micro credentialing PD necessarily mean everybody's in front of a device with a headset on watching videos or are there ways to get them? Go ahead, Megan.
2: Not, not at all, micro-credentials can have virtually any type of evidence you can think of. It can be a job embedded, something, it can, it, there's a big emphasis on video evidence because, I mean, if you think about the, the issues when you're trying to prove evidence, we've struggled with plagiarism for ages, right? So, but if my micro-credential is in welding and I videotape myself welding, okay, nobody can argue that I can't weld because here I am doing it, right? Um, if I even and even if I if there's a big emphasis on video and other things, maybe I have to get on camera and explain my understanding of the concept. It's me talking, and I'm explaining my understanding. So there's no argument that I understand it. There's a big emphasis on on you actually proving that you can do it. Um, first of all, that you have command of knowledge, and second of all, that you have implemented it, that you have applied it in some way. And those demonstrations of application often involve some kind of video or active, or or active th- um, demonstration. I mean, and that doesn't have to be something that you're doing solo. I mean, frequently, if you're if you're trying to demonstrate that you're you're working in a group, you're or um, or something like that, or or producing a, a group work product. So it, it so it it definitely does does not require that you work in
0: isolation. You also got to be careful too, because I think some are going to go oh, okay micro-credentialing tech, great, we'll just take the same exact pedagogy and drop it into Zoom and then we're good. I'm just going to lecture you for four hours, but you can be home uh, or in your classroom. That's even worse. We, you, we're we going to make you drive to your classroom and then sit in your classroom with a mask on and listen to Zoom. Um, pretty pretty neat stuff you guys are talking about, which is very much not that.
2: Well, so one, that did, is- one distinction, sorry, sorry Pat, one distinction that I want to make is that is that professional development Opportunities or classroom opportunities, that's where you go to learn something. Micro credentials are where you go to prove that you have learned something. So there's a distinction there. If you're if you're sitting watching Zoom, that might be something that you do to go pick up a new skill or read something or or whatever you do. But that's separate and apart from where you're coming to actually prove that you that you have gained the skill. I'm sorry, Pat.
3: Yeah, no, and that and part of that is the way we've structured evidence with building it out with our partners is you must upload evidence of understanding the concept and whether it be a screencast, an essay, fill out, you know, sort of a reflection prompt, videotape yourself. The first piece student of work evidence is part student work. I used to student
0: get work. evaluated yeah. based on a portfolio of student work. Yeah.
3: But the, but the first piece is evidence of mastering the concept. The second piece is evidence uploaded to the system of implementing it in your classroom. So that's where we upload student work, student projects, screencasts of what you did in your classroom, videotaping yourself teaching. So from a teacher perspective, there's evidence that, yeah, I get it. I understand it. And I've learned it. Now, here's me applying it. So it's moving to that application level. And look, I go way back to Blooms. And like I said, Western Washington University in 1986, we were studying Blooms. And we're still evaluating at the first two levels in almost everything we do. Micro-credentialing can get us to the application level of learning with evidence. We should have been going there for 40 years. We have an opportunity. Let's try to get there.
0: Gustavo, do you think this can help um, help you keep morale up, retain great teachers, recruit new ones? This has been a rough year for teachers.
1: An incredibly rough year. I think what's, what's happened before, and I think we, we've all ex- expressed it on the screen here this morning is, you know, meeting teachers where they're at as well. Just, we talk about meeting kids where they're at. We need to meet teachers where they're at because oftentimes what I've always stated is we don't differentiate enough for our, for our, for our professional learning for our, our teachers because we, like you said Doug, we put them in a, in, a, in a cafeteria for half a day and you all get the same PD. And some people may have already had that. So it just, it, it, uh, it could be considered by some staff members as a waste of time if you've gone through the same PD three times right? So how do you differentiate? And this is a way to be able to do that. And also um, my big push is also what's the return on investment. So by doing all this, by doing all this, what should I expect the staff member to do in a classroom to cause change, to increase student achievement or student learning, right? So what does that look like? And what are the outcomes that we should expect on the return on investment by doing all the professional learning that we talked about? i think that's something that we haven't measured we haven't done a great job of connecting the two in school systems and this is my fourth superintendency and tell you right now we have not done a good job in the systems i've seen so how do you connect what we're doing to the outcomes in a meaningful asset-based manner i'm sorry megan
2: oh no sorry that that was it we we do a lot of work in that area and sometimes sometimes it is in um In looking at PD, sometimes it's in looking at so so. uh, Sorry to keep going back to Utah, but we started there four years ago um, managing their professional development offerings, and then uh, a year later they asked us, "Could you manage our instructional materials? Where all the publishers put in the instructional materials aligned to Utah state standards, and specialists uh, determine what is the level of alignment?" And then we moved on to micro credentials, and so. What we're working on there is pulling all of that information combined with student performance metrics into similar data analytics views and then you can say okay well if we have you know this set of teachers that engaged in this professional development they have this long in the profession they've been in a building with the same administrator for x number of years uh we've used these curriculum programs with them and these are the student outcomes that we're seeing and those have to be multiple outcomes not just the standardized test but um formative evaluations, number of behavior incidents. I mean, if you're offering professional development in classroom management, you should see some result on on student behavior. There should be fewer incidents. There should be something measurable that improved in classroom management. If you're offering professional development on teaching elementary reading, there should be an improvement in elementary reading achievement. And so as you start setting up those, those um, return on investment kind of scenarios and evaluations, you just have to be um, thoughtful about what student performance metrics you're looking at for the type of investment that you made.
3: Yeah. And that, that, that Doug, that's the project we're starting with here in Washington and where we, we mentioned, you know, before we got on here with, with Gustavo, where we were reached out from the state superintendent's office for a meeting later this month to talk about how do we look at the data from the state? We have 1.1, 1.2 million kids here in the state of Washington. Every district reports into our state's CEDARS system you know, to, to put data in. And the conversation is a discussion of, is it possible? How could we, can we make this work where we can pull the data from the state system and look at it and break it down by our our ESD system, break it down by individual districts and look at what's happening across the districts where we don't have some summative assessment data. So potentially, and this is all in the conversations, look at data from 2019, 2020, this year, 21, and look at next year, 2022, and let's look at where those gaps are not only gaps across the state, but gaps at a district level, gaps at a building level, and working with individual districts, you have to get district NDAs and permission that way for data sharing agreements And that. Now look at the individual district. So if we take Edmonds for an example, Edmonds reports a certain amount of data to the state, but they also have other things they're doing in the district that are critically important to the mission of the Edmonds School District, but they're not necessarily state reportable. We want to look at that data as well and say, well, Edmonds across the state is here, but look at all these cool things they're doing and this is working for these particular populations. Could we do that in Spokane or Yakima or Pasco or Tacoma or other cities in the state? And what are they doing? And so that ability to pull multiple data sets into a single database and then explore your data to look at what's working and what's not That's the project we're discussing right now. We have not signed a contract and we don't want to overstate, but we're doing some of that work district-wide in Utah. We're doing that with other districts across the country. We're excited about that concept of taking data and really looking at your data as to what are those variables that make a difference and how can we impact student learning. And when we get good at that, we're going to the individual student what works for this kid and that that to me is that that's the powerful piece
0: great thank you um so just uh as we kind of move toward wrapping up this really great discussion i think i learned a ton today um gustav i've heard you and your and other iei colleagues say this a few times we were we're somewhat hemmed in by structures that have been in place for years the calendar the, uh, the agrarian calendar, the way we sort of structure our days. And now we just had a kind of pretty in-depth discussion about a brand new way of thinking about, you know, how to, how to measure how students are doing and measure teacher, professional development, growth um, development, professional development, uh, attainment of skills. How are, are people going to let you guys do this stuff? I mean, are people going to let you make changes to a calendar or, or implement a micro credential or, or do you anticipate the status quo is going to win out as we come out of this?
1: I think, you know, uh, my my opinion is we need to change our educational model. It's been long coming and education is, is hard to, to shift compared to the private sector. We all know that, but this is the future. And I think we need to meet kids where they're at and teachers where they're at. And this is the opportunity for us. We're never going to go back to, you uh, the way it was because the way it was wasn't working for many of our kids many of our staff so I think we just need to be forward thinking in terms of what it could be and 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 where to place best practices within a system to make sure it catches on and and, and then sustainable
0: how do you guide your community and the board that represents them through that process where do you start
1: know we're Edmonds, not different we're we're not a lot different than uh, than eugene that's not a lot different than berkeley california where it's process centric extremely process centric so we need to really show people the why and what i'm working with my school board right now is a collective visioning process that's a that's a strategic action plan and embed certain pieces of the work that needs to be done in a strategic action plan and hold it accountable to to our community, to our, to our staff, and to our kids, and then have metrics attached to it. So once you have it be very visible, and it's something that the board adopts, that's the marching orders for this system for the next three years or so, and we will continue to morph as a system. So it, it's having people understand, Doug, what it is and why it needs to happen. The, the what and the why, really, really critical, and to be able to explain it very clearly.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's tough work, but we're all here to lift you all up and support you and keep, keep telling the good stories. Cause I think people need to understand that superintendents did amazing work this year and, um, deserve credit for doing entrepreneurial stuff from the people who used to say that districts are kind of backwards and not with it. Um, I, I think that that we blew that narrative away this year, I hope. Um, and it's through your Hard work, and I know it's been a really tough year um, for everyone sitting in your seat. How about real quick? Let's just go around the room um, and let's. I'd love to hear just kind of. This has been a challenging year, but you know, we're the comeback is afoot, and we're there's light at the end of the tunnel, and people are getting vaccinated, and um, there's lots of hope for the future. What What's something that you've learned in the last year that that you can share with us? Maybe Pat or Maggie, you can go first.
3: We'll let Gustavo go last. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. And I think what's, you know, and, and Gustavo said this as well it's the how do we change our systems and some of the work we're doing. And I, we really appreciate IEI for what, you know, Doug, what you and the team brings is an opportunity for us to work with innovative superintendents who are moving forward in this work. And how do we get there? How do we work together to get there? And so, an example of what Gustavo just said is embedding some of the work in the system. But we have to get to the point where we're selling this concept. I tell this to my own team. I said, it's difficult to sell a product into a market if you haven't first sold the vision. Where are we going and why are we going there? And why is it important that we get there? And so, some of the work we're doing with one of the districts in Utah, the superintendent is asking his teachers to earn two micro credentials this spring. Over the summer, he's going to ask them to earn a micro credential in how to build micro-credentials for students. Next year, he's asking his teachers to all create a micro-credential that their students can use within the classroom so that a few years from now, micro-credentials and mastery-based learning will become part of the profile of a graduate and a requirement for graduation. And they're working with industry. They're working with the community college and the college system for that currency piece. They have a vision. They're sharing that vision with their community, with their board, with their teachers, and they're moving that process forward. It's not overnight, it's going to take three years. And we're excited to help tell that story and work with the superintendents to say, okay, look, this works, let's try it elsewhere.
0: Great, thanks, Pat. Megan, lesson learned for you as a CEO of a business during pandemic?
2: Uh, It's hard. um i yeah i, I mean we've, we've we've had it hard but rewarding in in some really interesting ways i mean i i don't think that i understood the power of micro credentials at the start of this you know i started midas 2007 uh when i was still in college and micro credentials were not even on my radar they weren't something that i thought about uh, cool. i did think a lot of i did think a lot about mastery-based learning and i and i started midas to achieve um progress in moving the needle towards mastery-based learning. But micro-credentials were not, you know, 14 years ago, were not something that I thought was going to do that. And so by working with our partners, um, that's how I became familiar with the concept. And um, and my initial reaction to micro credentials was the initial reaction a lot of people have is oh it's it's a badge it's as, as Pat says a sticker and a lollipop, <laughs> no um, they, you know they it it all depends how you how you implement it and there are badge programs out there that are the equivalent of a sticker and a lollipop okay go somewhere scan a QR code okay I got a badge like that's that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about real evidence of learning and and the reason that that you know, matters to me uh, and why, why I started working on mastery-based learning when I did 14 years ago um, is that it, it had a huge impact on me as a student. Now, I was, uh, I uh, you know, I'm fellow Ivy League uh, grads here. I went to Harvard, so people always assume, well, hey, you, you must have done well in school. Yeah, I did, but I think that I credit the reason with my having done well in school up to the point I got into college was that I always had enough time to master the content. I was fortunate. I just was the, the school pacing for me was at the right pace that it needed to be. So I had time to master the content of what came before, before I went into the thing that came next. And that allowed me to be successful. Sure. I worked hard, but I had enough time. When I got to college, I took classes where that wasn't the case. I struggled mightily in organic chemistry. And I found out that my organic chemistry class was moving at 2x the pace of some of my friends at state schools. I was like, well, wait. You get that much time to learn, and I only get this much time to learn. And that's when the lightning bolt hit me. And it's like, wait. If you disaggregate time from learning, <laughs> and you can move at your own pace, like this, this is really cool. But I never realized as a student who didn't particularly struggle in school that that was a thing. I just had enough time to master the content. So what if we give everybody enough time to master what they need to learn, and allow you to learn in in, in formats that you know, are, are tailored to you. So, um, so I don't know if that answered your question about specifically what I learned during the pandemic, but in working with our partners, I have learned about what micro-credentials are and, you know, as a result, I've become an evangelist of them, um, which, which is different from where I was 14 years ago.
0: (laughs) The tagline there is give everyone time to learn. That's a great way to encapsulate it. And that's helped me just in the last minutes we've been speaking, understand it better. Um, thank you. Gustavo, what's, what's been a lesson learned for you this, this crazy year?
1: You know, one thing that, uh, that I've learned is what we've all, always known in schools is that we haven't been able to meet the needs of kids, but it's been really made visible because of the pandemic in terms of uh, the access to broadband. And we've heard of this over and over again, access to broadband, lack of parental understanding of how to support their kids at home because of the lack of skills or uh, that some families have and, and no fault of their own. I mean, my own mom and dad never went to school, right? So they, they weren't educated. They couldn't help me during a pandemic, even if I wanted to, right? So I sought all the help at the brick and mortars. So there's a lot of kids that were me, that are me still in my, in my, in my schools. So, and uh, making sure that we use information to really help inform uh, what, we, um, what we have and what's needed. So where are our kids at? and meet kids where they're at. And also uh, really look at education. What What's resonated for me the last few months, it's really the understanding of we need to look at education differently. I, I've been saying schools without walls lately, because again, with uh, with technology the way it is, we should be able to have kids be able to have a variety of different pathways to meet their their needs. So that can, could include some blended learning, complete remote, which is, which is something that's happening right now to uh again be able just to take coursework and and meet them where they're at and that's the equity piece to me that's the equity piece to me is making sure we know where kids are at and meet them where they're at and for staff provide just-in-time professional learning to what they need as well and be able to differentiate that i think that's absolutely what's been needed here
0: thank you so much this has been uh this has been great i think we've we've we boiled down some of we boiled down a couple of buzzwords into I think you know um, just easy plain language for for what micro credentials are and I appreciate us getting into that and Gustavo continue to appreciate your work out there we're so glad you're a part of IEI and so glad Midas is part of it too my last question is do you guys think the Mariners are for real so they came out of the gate pretty good then Oakland went on a streak. I don't know. Okay.
3: I I am a baseball fanatic. I know you are. That's why I'm
0: asking the question. It's really a question for you, Pat.
3: Okay. (laughs) I talked to my son who happened to be doing some Air Force training at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. And I said, I want 20 bucks on the M's to win the AL West, to win the AL and to win the World Series. And my son said, dad, why don't you just pour lighter fluid on 60 bucks and put it (laughs) on fire?
0: The odds (laughs) must be good on the World Series. (laughs) It
3: would have been great had he placed the bet. Now, as a real baseball guy, you're not going to make the playoffs if only three of your nine hitters can actually hit at the major league level. Okay. They've been winning games. Their overall batting average is atrocious. Mm-hmm. We only have three what I would consider major league hitters in the lineup right now. So we're in trouble if we don't get guys to start hitting. Okay.
0: Thanks for that analysis. Gustavo, you want to jump in there, you're welcome to. I'm glad that this year we'll get to See, like, we'll be able to play the West Coast teams and East Coast teams. Sorry, West Coast teams, be able to play East Coast and vice versa and the Central. Have a real season. That's that's what I want yeah. as right? Um,
1: you know, Doug, I'm just happy we're playing sports again and not watching holing championship on TV on ESPN. So I'm just happy.
0: Bowling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, Megan, any comments on the Mariners? Are you good?
2: Oh, I, I don't know that much about baseball. Thank you.
0: <laughs> no worries. Great. It's great talking to you all and um, look forward to seeing you in person again in a couple of months. All right. Take care. Yes. Thanks. Thanks so Bye. much, everyone. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Megan. I want to thank Patrick Leonard. I want to thank Dr. Balderas. I want to thank everybody who's listening. I want to wish everybody out there a happy graduation season. We've got a couple more episodes for you this school year. Then we'll take a little hiatus in July as we, put on the um, IEI Summer Symposium at the Biltmore. So a uh, couple couple more things to come at you before the end of the school year, um, including a couple more great superintendent interviews with some of our, our newer members, the next one being with um, Mr. Matt Miller of Lakota Community Schools outside of Cincinnati in Ohio. So look forward to that. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll see you soon.